Good morning, church. Good morning. Hey, we're grateful to have you guys. And if you're a first-time guest, uh, you're uh, here with us. We're grateful that you're here. And I just want to join uh, Pastor Archie in saying thank you for taking the time to be here this morning. Uh, we are actually in week two of a series called Jesus, the True and Better. And uh, if you are here, you're like, I don't even know what Jesus, the True and Better really means. Well, here's what we're doing. We're taking Old Testament... Uh, Old Testament narratives and characters, and we're going to show you a typology or a type of Jesus, the one to come. And so last week, we took Adam, and in Adam, we know that all humanity sins, uh, that we inherit that from Adam, that that's the one thing that he passed down to you. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, black, blue, green, purple, brown, or white. If you're in here, we all come from one father, one heritage, and that's Adam. And uh, we ultimately all inherited one thing from him, and that was sin and separation from God because of their act in the garden. Now, we know John 3 says that what? Flesh gives birth to flesh. That means that it doesn't matter where we are in the cycle, uh, even thousands of years removed, that we're all sinners and that we fall short of God's glory. But just as Adam fell in the garden, just as he was not obedient in the garden, we have a true and better Adam that was perfect in every way. And so the first Adam, he failed under the absolute best of circumstances. And the second Adam, as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, he was what? Perfect even under the worst of circumstances. And so we get sin from the first Adam. We get perfection and righteousness from the second Adam. We get separation and condemnation from the first Adam. We get holiness, righteousness, and what? An opportunity to... Uh, be in the presence of a holy father through the second Adam. And so that's what we're doing. We're taking a character in the Old Testament, and we're going to show how we see Jesus in that story. And so that is how we have this series, Jesus, the True and Better. So last week we looked at Adam. This week we're going to look at another character, and we're going to see his name um, pop up several times in Genesis, and his name is Joseph. Now, Joseph is a, a rarity in our Bible. When I say a rarity in our Bible, the Bible usually reminds us of most of us in this room. What does that mean? Well, the good thing about our Bible is that we can look at a character, we can look at how they messed everything up, and then how God used that situation. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody in here, you're like, oh, I'm so thankful that God takes what I messed up and uses it for good. Yes? And so, like, that's the norm in our Bible. Like, that's what we see. We see Moses. We see Aaron. Uh, we see so many throughout our Bible that they messed it up. David, king of Israel, messed it up. God redeemed it. In this case, you have Joseph. And Joseph was a man that was pure. You never see any character flaws in his entire story. And the entire narrative, it is, it is regarded as Joseph being a man of great integrity and holiness. You have the same in Daniel. If you remember Daniel's day, Daniel was devout, and he was just strong, and, and he was just a man, I mean, just to the core, uh, and he was godly in all of those things. Uh, you see the same with uh, Hosea. He was a godly man and, and just did not give way. You see the same with Joshua when Moses fell short. And so like, it's a rarity, though, in our Bible that we see men of integrity and holiness throughout their entire narrative. It's common that we see someone that, what, their life falls short, and then God uses it in spite of them being rejected and, and falling short in their sin. But Joseph's just not that. And so Joseph is a typology of Jesus, and he has more typology or more types of Jesus than any other narrative in all of your Bible. 
uh, you have a lot of other good ones. Moses, Daniel, Adam, like we saw last week. But nothing compares to the narrative that Joseph has. And we're going to look at it in Genesis chapter 37 and following. Today we've got time for Genesis 37. Next week we're going to do another couple of chapters on Joseph. And then we're going to move on with a few other characters, okay? So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. If you don't have your Bibles, okay, we're going to put it for you up on the screen. But we'd love to get you a Bible if you don't have one. Awesome? Yes. Okay, let's pray together and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would make it alive and real to us. And Lord, just help us to see some things that we've never seen before. God, whether or not we're a first-time guest or we've been here for three or four years, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts, remind us of your great love for us, and show us how you take a man like Joseph and you use his story to point to the coming King, Jesus Christ, the, the, the Messiah of the world, the Savior who takes away the sin of his people who've fallen short. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, y'all ready? Now, I'm going to have to tell you, in this narrative, it, it may feel like it starts out a little slow. If you'll hang with me, I promise it ends with a bang, okay? So, so hang with me. Let me give you a little backlog. So here's what you have. You have God establishing his people. You have it in Adam, right? Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain slays Abel. So you know that Abel's out of the picture in terms of the, uh, the, the generations coming through him. You don't want it to go through Cain because he's a murderer. And so they eventually have a son named Seth. And so the lineage goes from Adam to Seth. And then eventually it continues to pass on down from there. Uh, and then he goes to a, a son named Shem. And then Shem uh, has several children. One of them is a guy named Noah, makes a big boat, saves a handful of people in the midst of a flood. And then from there, he has a few sons as well. Well, one of those is what? Abraham. And Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, is called out of the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, and Mesopotamia, near the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And God says, if you'll follow me, I'm going to give you a nation, I'm going to give you people, and I'm going to give you blessing. He says, I'm going to give you a land. It's going to be Canaan or Palestine. I'm going to give you more people than you can count, as numerous as the stars of the sky, sand on the seashore. And he says, I'm going to give you a blessing. And I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And he says, and that's going to run forever. And then Abraham, because in all his wisdom, hears from God, he decides, I'm going to have a child on my own because my wife Sarah can't. And so he has a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael is not the son of the promises. He's the son of disobedience. But God says, hey, I'm going to take your mess up, Abraham, and I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. And yes, she's old, and I know you don't think it's possible. I'm going to do something supernatural. I'm going to give you a son, and his name is what? Isaac. And so through Isaac, the lineage begins to come. And then Isaac has two sons. We have Esau, the son of the birthright, and we have what? Jacob, okay? In other pronunciations, what you have is Harry, Esau, you remember, Harry. And you have Sneaky, Jacob. Sneaky decides, I'm going to do some tricks, tricking in, in uh, my father's old age. And he fools Isaac. And guess what? He gives the birthright to who? Jacob. Although it's rightfully Esau's, Esau gives it to him for a bowl of porridge. And you see that the birthright continues through Jacob. Jacob is the very one who wrestles with God overnight. You remember that? He afflicts his hip, and after he afflicts his hip, he's going to walk differently all the days of life. He does something unique, and he names him something different. You're no longer going to be called Sneaky Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. 
And I'm going to take all of your mess-ups and I'm going to redeem them. And then he's going to give him 12 sons. Jacob's going to have 12 sons. You remember Jacob? Jacob is the one who went to his father-in-law. And he says, I want to marry your daughter. And he goes, well, I've got two daughters. Well, no, I want the pretty one over there, Rachel. Okay, I got you. Well, you can have Rachel. You're going to work seven years for her. And so he goes and he works seven years. At the end of the seven years, there's a lady going, hey, come here, cutie. Come into my tent. The problem is he wakes up the next morning and he's like, ah! It's not Rachel. It's Leah, the ugly one, okay? But guess what? He's worked seven years for her. He gets Leah. And guess what? Now he's like, hey, wait a second. You deceived me. And his father-in-law goes, I deceived you. Does that sound familiar? And what does he do? He reaped what he sowed. He works another seven years. And eventually he gets Rachel, the one that was his prized possession. Before Rachel becomes his wife, he has several sons. The oldest son is a son named Reuben. Reuben is the one that you would think would be the natural childbearing and, and ultimately the heir to everything that Jacob has. But that's not the way it works. Eventually, after Rachel, who couldn't conceive for a while, has, again, a supernatural occurrence and conceives, she's going to give birth to her firstborn son, which is a son named Joseph. And then she's going to give birth to one other son, and she's going to die during conception. And she's going to name him Benjamin. And so all in all, between Jacob's wife Leah, the wife that he loved dearly, and the chosen woman, Rachel, and one of the concubines that he's going to inherit during the way, uh, which is a maid of Rachel's, he's going to have 12 total sons. And those are going to make up the tribes of Israel. Okay? Make sense? Okay, you just need that for context. So here we go. Verse 1 of 37. Now Jacob lived in a land where his father had sojourned. So his father lived in a land. It was the land of Canaan. That's where they were supposed to be. Matter of fact, if you remember in Genesis chapter 24, if you remember when Abraham was looking for a wife for his son Isaac, he sent the servant out. He said, I want you to go find a wife for her and I want you to bring her back. And Isaac goes, hey, I'll go. And the Lord said, no, Isaac is to what? Remain in the land. And the reason why is this, God blessed the nation of Israel when they were obedient to him and when they remained in the land. Anything outside of the land could cause havoc and devastation. And not only that, when they got out of the land of God's protection, they started intermarrying, they started uh, mingling with Canaanites, Moabites, all these other people. And God said, no, 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 I want you to stay in the land. Well, here it is, they're in the land. Verse 2. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, who was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, I'm going to show you 10 or 11 things that are similarities between Joseph and Jesus. And the very first one is this, is that he was a good shepherd. John chapter 10 says that what? Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They hear me when they speak, when I speak. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. So Jesus is the good shepherd. Joseph is a good shepherd. And what's unique about this is that Joseph is a good shepherd at what age? Now you ask, let me ask you this question. What's a bigger miracle, that he's a good shepherd or that he's a good shepherd at age 17? Parents, how many of you right now, like you're praying for your 15, 16, 17-year-old? You're like, God help me, please help me. Are you there? Yes? Can I get an amen? Yes, a few amens. Amen, baby. Amen. Yes. It's unique that this man loves God even at 17, and he's a good shepherd. Now, what's interesting is, is this. 
He is not the oldest son. Matter of fact, he's not even the third oldest son, the fourth oldest son, the fifth oldest son. He is low down in terms of age, but what's interesting is, is what the context of verse 2 is. These are the records of Jacob. Joseph is 17, he's a pastor in the flock, he's a good shepherd with his brothers while he's still a youth. And Joseph brings back a bad report about his brothers. What's interesting is, is though he is younger than his brothers, he's been given position and authority over them. Why? Because he can bring back a bad report about them. Now, this isn't your classic, like, nanny nana boo boo, like, you're, you're messing up, I'm just a tattletale situation. No, here's what it is. God has given Joseph great regard with his father. And his dad loves him so much that he esteems him more than any other. Matter of fact, look at verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. Israel is Jacob. Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. He Get this. He loved his son Joseph so much that he even adorned him with fine garments. That he cloaked him. That he gave him authority. That he gave him honor. That he gave him prestige. And he gave him power. All of these things are things that he inherited from his father. Now, I'll tell you, who in the New Testament is the good shepherd that God gives all authority? What did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me by my Father under heaven and of earth. And what did the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees say? Wait, wait, wait a second, that's blasphemy. He said, no, no, I and my Father are one. And there's nothing that I do that the Father doesn't, what, approve of. Why? Because who has all authority under heaven and earth? Jesus. And so in this story right here what you see is Jacob has taken all authority and he has given to his son Joseph verse 4 his brothers saw that their love their father loved him more than all of his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms it had gotten so bad in their house and why it was over jealousy it was over the fact that their father had appointed a younger son not the rightful heir in their mind to be the rightful heir with position and authority and they hated him they would not even speak to him on such terms. Sound familiar in the New Testament? A band of brothers who spoke maliciously about someone and did not like him. They hated him. Jesus said, they hated me. How much more will they hate you for loving me? Yes? Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told to his brothers, they hated him even more. So get this. I don't know about you, but here it is. You've got this younger brother who is ruling over his older brothers, and matter of fact, everyone in the family, and they don't like it. They hate him, they don't regard him, and then all of a sudden he shows up and goes, hey guys, let me tell you about this dream I had last night. Awesome. I'm sure they want to hear it, right? Because listen to the dream. He says to them, hey, listen to the dream that I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheave rose up over all the rest of them. And behold, your sheaves gathered around. They bowed down to my sheaf. Oh, awesome. I bet that did good for the family reunion, didn't it? And his brother said to him, in a laughing way, I believe, like, you really think you're going to reign over us? Like, seriously? Joseph, like, you, you really think you're that special? Then he says, or are you really going to rule over us? Which one is it? Are we going to bow down to you, or you're just going to be so great and mighty that you're going to rule over us? I mean, Take your pick, Joseph. Which one is it? And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Why is it that the Jews hated Jesus so much? 
Why do they claim for him to be a blasphemy? Why? Because he says, I am what? The good shepherd. I am the Messiah. All authority has been given under heaven and earth to me. I have come to save people from their sins. I have come to restore what's been broken. And that was Jesus' what? Main purpose in life was to come to an imperfect people who fell short in the first Adam to be the greater Adam and redeem all that's what? Sinful. And his people hated him for it. They absolutely hated him for it. Then he says, verse 9, hey, that's not it. I've had another dream. So look at it. I've had another dream still. And he related to his brother and said, lo, I've, get, I, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. What? Sun and moon and eleven stars. And now he's dead. He pops up. Verse 10. He related to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, hey, what is this dream stuff that you keep doing? You know, what is this stuff that you keep having? And then he says, shall I and your mother, sun and moon, and your brothers, all the stars, really come and bow down ourselves before you, even to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. This is, hey, underline that in your Bible. His brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now the question is, is this. Jacob heard the dream that Joseph had said, but the question is, is why is he not hating his son, and why is he not an outrage like everyone else is? And here's why. Because he knows that there is nothing in Joseph that would cause him to be arrogant or proud. That he's always humble, that he's always kind, and that his integrity speaks of such. And so he is not lording these dreams over his brothers in a way that's malicious. He's simply sharing with them something that's going to be divine. Make sense? And so it's his heart. Like you could come and go, hey man, I've had this dream and I'm going to rule and lord over you. And you are nothing but a peasant to me. Or you could be like Jesus who came as a humble, meek servant, but yet also speaking the truth of God in love. And that's exactly what Joseph would do. And so Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, kept the saying in mind. So let me ask you a question. So far in this narrative, do y'all realize what the problem is? Here's the problem. You have a son who has been given all authority, who rules over his brothers and is hated for it. Yet the one thing that separates him from his brothers is his righteousness. He has done no wrong. And when you are righteous and you love God in a pure way, what does that do to people who are malicious and are hateful? It separates them. It's like oil and water. And that's what's happened in this narrative. Joseph, his heart is right, and yet his brothers hate him for it. Why? Because they look at this son who has been awarded righteousness and a very colored tunic, a coat of many colors, and they go, why have I not gotten that? Why have I not received that? And yet they know they're guilty in their sin. And they're separated from the Father because of it. Understand? That's this narrative. Verse 9. After he had had this dream, verse 10, 11, all of that, look what happens in verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their flocks in Shechem. And so they leave, and they're going to take their flocks, and they go to Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. Now, here's a problem. He goes, why are the boys in Shechem? Now, quick question. 
where are they supposed to be? Verse 1, Canaan. Where did God bless his people? Canaan. Now, you can take any part in your Old Testament. Like, just take it. I just dare you. Just take it and just kind of scroll through it at some point, and you're going to land out. It doesn't matter if it's in Hosea. It doesn't matter uh, where it is in your Old Testament narrative. You're going to find that any time the Israelites are in Shechem, it's bad news. Why? Because in Shechem, they're not where they're supposed to be, and they're not doing what they're supposed to be. What? Doing. And so his father says, I'm going to... I want you to go after them in Shechem, and I want you to bring them back here. I want you to report to me. And so Joseph, latter part of 13, says, I'll go. I'll go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, which is in Canaan, and he came to Shechem. And so here it is. Joseph was sent to his brothers to bring them back to what? The land of blessing. Wow. What does this mean? This is like the fourth or fifth thing I've showed you, but here's the thing. Israel had a heyday. Their heyday was back when King David ruled. That was the pinnacle of their lives. They had gone from Abraham, eventually, all the way to Isaac, Jacob. Eventually, they would go uh, all the way to the lineage of Moses. They would get the law. God would impart the law to their people. They would what, stay uh, there after 400 years of bondage in Egypt due to a famine in the land. They would be set free by Moses only to what? Ask for judges, someone to rule over them. They would have judges there. They'd go, no, 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 we don't like judges. All the other nations have kings. Can we not have a king? They get the first king, King Saul. They didn't like him. God didn't like him. And so he removes the blessing from Saul and he raises up a new king under the father, Jesse, who would be what? David, and he promised David there's going to be a Davidic king that comes, and he's going to rule on the throne forever. His name's going to be Jesus. And under David, they would rule, and they would reign. They would have more territory than they've ever had, and God would bless them more than he's ever been blessed. The problem is, is that not too long after David died, Solomon, his son, would become king. It would kind of begin to spiral downhill a little bit. Then Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the two sons of Solomon, would split the kingdom. And guess what? It just goes south in a hurry. And a thousand years before Jesus, David is king. And when, listen, when Jesus comes on the scene, the people have not only wandered from Canaan, they are living in the land of Shechem. And guess who's ruling over them? The Romans. Who's ruled over them since? Well, from the days of David... Eventually Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, because of their sin, guess what? The Assyrians would come in, then the Babylonians, then the Medes, the Persians, then after them the Grecians, and after the Grecians the Romans. And here it is, when Jesus, the true and better, the Son of God, comes to his people, he says, I'm here to take you back to the land of blessings. I'm here to restore everything that's been broken. You thought that this was a great nation. And back when David ruled, it was. But we have fallen. Oh, how far has the mighty fallen. And Israel is at the lowest point of their entire history of his nation when Jesus the Messiah comes. They have wandered from the land of blessing of Canaan to places in Shechem where they shouldn't be. Intermarrying and mingling. And listen. They have no purity in their land. They've forsaken God. They've given themselves over to idols, to the bells, to Asherah poles, and everything else. And they are about as low as you could get. And God says, I love you so much that even in your sin, I'm going to send a son to you that's righteous, 
that's clothed in splendor to bring back a broken, what, people, sons of Israel, to the homeland. Is that what Joseph's job is? Yes. Jacob says, boy, go get them and bring them back. God says, Jesus, go get them and bring them back to the land of blessing. Well, let's see their response. Let's see if their response is similar to the response in Israel. He goes. Verse 15, a man finds him. And behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where to find them, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, well, they've moved from here. For I heard them say, let's go down to Dauphin. And sure enough, he goes and his brothers are found, what? In Dauphin. And as he's coming down, verse 18, when they see him from a distance and before he came close, they plotted against him to put him to what? Death. And look what they say. Interesting. And they said to one another, "Uh uh-oh, hey, look, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. Is that not Israel's response to Jesus? John 1, and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us, his people, yet they did not recognize or what? Receive him. And so God sends Jesus to come and restore blessings to Israel, and they say, no, you're not the one true king. Joseph goes to his brothers to say, let's go home, boys. And what does he do? No, we're not listening to you, the dreamer. Who's giving you authority? Yeah, that's a coat of many colors. That's real pretty, boy. But we're not listening to you. We have authority to hear. This is our our family. Dad's not here to protect you anymore. We're going to do what we want to do. And we'll see how that works out, okay? And so they find him. Here comes the dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams then. And so here's what they do. They take him, and they decide, hey, we're going to kill him. Is that what the Jews did to Jesus? Yes. Hey, you were blaspheming against God. We're going to take you and kill you. And guess what they did? They took Jesus, hung him on the cross, and they threw him in a pit or a grave. They're going to take Joseph, and they're going to throw him into a pit. And then look what they do after this. They throw him in a pit. They're hoping that his dreams are devoured. All the claims, what Jesus said, what? Hey, destroy this temple, John 2, and in three days I'll rise it up again. Right? What does that mean? And so they think, we can squash the dreamer. Here we go. Look at verse uh, 21. But Reuben heard this. Now, who is Reuben? Reuben's the older brother. Leah's firstborn son. Should be the established heir of the... Of what? Everything that Jacob has. But he's not. But look at Reuben. Reuben hears this, and he desires to rescue him out of their hands and says, let's not take his life. Come on, guys. Like, yo, we need to, I get what you're doing, I see, but we're not going to take his life. Reuben then further said, shed no blood, throw him into the pit, but that's, that is in the wilderness, but don't lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. And the question is, is why is Reuben trying to protect him. Why does Reuben not want him to die? Well, earlier in the narrative of Genesis, what you're going to see is that Reuben does something very similar to the prodigal son. He is going to go to his, his father, and he's going to try to lay with one of his concubines and begin to take some of the prestige and power from Jacob, his father. And since that point, guess what? What happens when a son asks for the inheritance early? He gets booted out, right? No longer in right fellowship, Yes? And so right now, Reuben is not in right fellowship. And so here's the old adage. If Reuben, who's not in right fellowship, 
with his father can protect one of his sons, then maybe if I can make sure he doesn't die, then I can what? Later come on and say, hey, dad, I protected your son. And what's his goal? He's hoping that he can work himself back up into prestige and honor with the father. Does this sound familiar to any of us churchgoers today? Like we, can't, we don't really comprehend grace, and so what do we do? We want to work ourselves back into God's right standing. That Jesus isn't really the way that we do it, so what do we do? We try to work on it on our own, and that's what Reuben would do. What's interesting here, though, is Reuben is the exact same character later that we would see in our Bible in the, in the narrative of Jesus. I'll show it to you in just a second, verse 29. But here it is, verse 21, 22, Reuben goes missing. Like we don't see Reuben anymore, he's gone, so it appears that he's gone off and he'll come back. But verse 23 says, So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. What did they do with Jesus? They took him, they stripped him of his clothing, his dignity. They wanted to put, oh, hell, king of the Jews. But what? No, they changed it. He claims to be the king of the Jews. They weren't going to give him the authority that he deserved. They stripped him of it. And that's exactly what they would do with Joseph. And then they throw him into the tomb. And so they kill Jesus, they throw him into the tomb, and then what do they do? Isaiah 53 says what? They're going to spit upon him. They're going to reject him. They're going to hurl insults at him. Right? Is that what they do to Joseph? Look what happens. They throw him the tune, verse 25. Then they sit down and eat a meal. They leave him as good as dead, not even water for his lips. You remember? Did Jesus get water for his lips? All they would do is what? Give him a sponge. And he would deny it. They don't give Joseph anything. They leave him as good as dead. And what do they do? They go and have fellowship. They go laugh. They hurl insults. They mock him. And they despise him so much that they actually enjoy a meal while he lays in a tomb. All while thinking, hey, he's as good as dead to us. And then look what happens. Verse 25 And as they were eating, they raised their eyes and looked. Behold, the caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way, they were heading down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, Hey, what what does it profit for us to kill him? Why why do we want to kill him and cover up his blood? I mean, that's going to be a messy deal. Now, Judah in the Hebrew is what? Judah, in the Greek, would be Judas. Both greedy men, both willing to sell their brother for shekels. Right? So look what happens. What's it profit for us to kill him and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. Then the Midianite traders pass by. They pull him up out of the pit. They lift him up. And then they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Got me? And so Judas is willing to exchange the truth of God for a lie for what? 20 shekels of silver. Judas's case, 30 shekels of silver. And here it is. Jesus is on his way and Joseph is on his way. And the question is this. What does this mean? Well, here's what it means. Joseph is at this point right now in his life, and he believes that he has now been sold by his brothers 
and what, maybe forsaken by God? I've had this, this dream. Maybe I'm forsaken by God. No, he's not forsaken by God. He's going to be faithful in the midst of hard times. And his brothers believe that he is as good as dead. What do they think? They think that he is done. They have taken him instead of killed him in the pit. They have what? Taken him and sold him to a bunch of Ishmaelites. And for what? The, the day's wage of a slave, a worthless slave at that, and they decide, hey, he's as good as dead to us. And they truly believe in their hearts that they will no longer see him ever again. Like when they sell him, do you think that they believe there's going to be a day in our life where we're going to actually see him again? No. They believe he is dead and he is not coming back. Hence, a group of Jews that hated Jesus put his body on a cross, kills him, throws it in a tomb, and they believe that he is as good as dead to us, and he is not coming back. But behold, he is a balm from Gilead. Did you catch that up there? Look at this. And they were coming through with aromatic gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to Egypt, and they were men from Gilead. Jesus has oftentimes been referred to as the balm of Gilead. Why? Well, here's why. The balm of Gilead was a plant that they would take and they would rub as medicinal purposes. And it didn't matter what it was. It's like oh, my grandma used to think if you go down to the ocean and you get your body in that salt, man, it just heals everything. Okay. Well, the balm of Gilead was a plant and it claimed to just basically be a medicinal cure for almost everything there was. Well, here's what this text says. These men come from Gilead with a balm, an aromatic gum, like this wonderful fragrant offering. And they're going to take Joseph. Well, let me ask you a question. Who is the fragrant offering that is the balm of Gilead? That though you believed he was dead, he once rose again. And with him, he brought healing purposes to the nations. There you go. That, that's extra. You don't have, yeah, that's, just, that's just extra for y'all. Then look what happens. Verse 29, look who shows up again. Now Reuben... Returned to the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his garments. Why? This is a problem for him. This is a problem. He sees this man gone, his brother. And he now he tears his garment. I mean, it's as if he hits the floor and he tears his garment and he begins to just cry and weep. And look what he says. The boy is not there. Where am I to go? Meaning... My life has come to an end. Guys, what in the world have y'all done? I thought we talked about him staying here. I thought we talked about not shedding blood. We weren't going to kill him. That we're going to leave him here. I was going to come back. And he had every plan to rescue him and put him right in right standing with the Father. But the problem is, is this. He's like, I wasn't here. And y'all went and did this. And you charged him as if he was guilty when he is, what? Innocent. Do you remember Caiaphas sending him to Pilate back and forth, back and forth, found innocent six times? And what did Pilate, what did Reuben do? He wanted to wash his hands of it. Pilate said, surely this man has done no wrong. Reuben knew his brother had done no wrong. And Reuben's motive was, I'm not touching this. But now he falls and why does he fall? Just the same that Pilate is one day going to look. Pilate and Reuben both failed in one reason. It wasn't that they failed that, to, to see that the Son of God, or in this case, Joseph was a pure man, innocent in every way. They failed to take a stand for what they knew was right. And Pilate came up with another reason. Hey, you can have Barabbas. 
You can have Barabbas. I mean, he's guilty. You can have him. And he came out with another reason other than just standing and saying, no, no, innocent man will not shed his blood. In this case, no, we're not going to do this. You know that he is right. He has done nothing wrong. We're not going to do this. Instead, he wipes his hands of it. He comes back, and guess what? Now he falls on his face on the ground because he knows that he can never, ever, 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 ever gain access to his father again because his, what, firstborn son, the son of the promise, is now dead. See it? Matter of fact, look how it continues. So they take Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in blood, and they sent the very colored tunic back to the father and said, we have found this. Please examine to see whether or not it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined and said, it is my son's tunic, and a wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And he begins, if you can just think, just begins to weep and cry because it is his firstborn son, the son of Rachel, the son that he loved, the one that he had chosen, the righteous son had done everything his father had ever asked him to do. He was the younger one left to care for his father, and he always did as his father instructed. In every way, he did as his father said he would do. And now he weeps and he mourns. And Jacob, verse 23, tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and on his loins, and mourns for his son for many days. You know what this means? It meant this. No one could come into the presence of their father because their, what, firstborn son has now died. They have rejected him. And so in a sense, here's what's happened. Joseph, esteemed by his father, as the firstborn, the righteous heir of all things, the word of truth, the one who has been given position and authority, perfect in every way, had done no wrong, charged, what? Claimed, though he had done wrong, was innocent. Could not find guilt in him. They throw him in a tomb only to sell him. Left for dead, they believe that he'll never see him again. And guess what? They report back to the father, that guess what? Your son is gone. Sound familiar? And because of what they've done, they will find no fellowship with the Father. Because of what they did, they will find no fellowship with the Father. For how long? For many days. For many days, they will be absent of a father. And then look at verse 35, and then we're going to wrap this up. This is absolutely amazing. Okay, here we go. It's this, we're going to end with good stuff. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in the morning for my son. I'm going to mourn for my son. I'm going to weep. I'm going to wail. I am going to cry in angst. I am going to literally just stay there, and I am going to mope. His father wept for him. And there is no fellowship with the father at this point. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Do y'all catch this? Look at this. Y'all didn't catch it. Quit lying. Y'all didn't catch this. Look at this. His people, though he dwelt among them, have rejected him. They believe he's dead. They have no fellowship with the father. And so the father, what? has a son who's now made his way to a new land in Egypt, the Gentiles. And he's going to make himself known to them there. And just as one people says he's dead, another people says, no, he is surely alive. 
Just as one person says, no, he is not righteous and not perfect and not pure, he is not the Messiah, another group of people in Wills Point, Texas said, no, 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 he is the Messiah, he is perfect in every way, he is the perfect son, and yes, he has extended the gospel of grace to the Gentile, to people who will believe, although this people will not believe. And so one people says he is dead and he is surely gone, and another one says, oh, no, 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 he is surely alive and he has found me. And yes, we are rejoicing. And so here's the question, friends. Has Israel been rejected by their father for a time? Yes. We live right now in a time where Israel had an opportunity to, what? Stop wandering in Shechem and return to the land of blessing in Canaan and to be with their God. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. We do not believe that Jesus is the rightful Savior. We do not believe that he has authority over heaven and earth, and sure not of us. We do not believe that he came to reconcile of the law and the prophets. We do not believe that he is the Messiah of the world. And guess what? He says, if you will not believe, then I will take this gospel, which was worse what meant for the Jew, and I will make the gospel revealed to the Gentile. And I'll go to Egypt, and I'll go to Samaria, and I'll go to every other filthy place in the world. And I'll rescue and redeem anyone who would what? Believe in me. And call upon the name of the Lord. For they would find salvation. Joshua. His name means added or take away. In some cases add or take away. Who's the God that gives and takes away? Can God in his sovereignty not take a nation who he elected? And put them on the bench for a time to add to his holiness in this time? Yes. And so here's what's happened, friends. Joseph was rejected by his brothers and will be received by the Gentiles. And Israel will enter into a land of famine, will they not? And it's going to get a hard time. And guess what? They're going to be looking for a ruler, one to be gracious and one to be kind, one to say... Come on to me. Bow down. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess before heaven and earth. And you will know that I'm Lord. When is that going to take place in your Bible? The seven-year tribulation. And so is a seven-year famine coming? Yes. And guess what? We'll talk about it next week. A seven-year famine's coming. And they're going to need rescuing. And guess who's going to rescue them? The one and only son, Joseph. Jesus, Yeshua, God's salvation. Amen? That's pretty good stuff, right? You know what I love most about it? It's Christmas time, and there's no need for a preacher to be all over me. Just tell me what the Bible says. You know what I'm saying? So you don't have to come. You just get to learn God's truth. And so should we play Christmas music early? Yes. Why? Because God's son is coming. Understand? And hey, listen, he's better than Santa Claus. Got me? Amen? Let's pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the life. We thank you for the way, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for his son, though he was despised and rejected by the ones he loved. Lord, he has opened up access to the Father, to the one and only, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And though there are many people today that would claim that he's dead, that would claim that an empty tomb is simply a farce. Lord, we know that your word points to us. That it is not a hoax. It's not a farce. It's not a 
a book of stories that we've collected over the years. But Lord, it is the narrative of a nation and a man named Jesus and how you are reconciling all things that have been broken to you. So Lord, may you receive us. God, may you hear us. God, may we know you just as well as you know us. And most of all, Lord, may we celebrate who you are this Christmas as we approach this Advent season of recognizing that you are the hope of the world, that you are the peace to the broken, that you are the salvation to those who are lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.